Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. We're joined today by writer, producer, director Nathaniel Kahn. He's known for such work as The Dark Side of the Sun, in 2018, he was kind enough to join us here on Film School Radio to discuss his documentary film, The Price of Everything. He's back to talk about the 20-year anniversary of his seminal documentary film called My Architect. The time when it came out in 2003 was regarded as one of the very best documentary films of the decade, an award-winning film that was the story of his father, Louis Kahn, a renowned architect, and his father and in the troubled and complicated relationship that he shared with him. It is a beautiful film to look at and an emotionally compelling film to absorb. I'd like to welcome back to the program director, producer, writer, Nathaniel Kahn. Before we get too far into our conversation, I want to let people know that My Architect is being re-released with its premiere, or re-premiere, if you will, uh, at the Film Forum in New York City on April 7th. It will eventually be rolling out across the country at theaters, museum, art galleries, and such. So, and, um, Are you going to be at the Film Forum when, uh, when it, for the premiere for the, uh, yes. on the 7th? Oh, okay. absolutely. I, okay. I'm, I'm thrilled to be back at Film Forum. You know, we, it's, it's been 20 years, and when we opened at Film Forum 20 years ago, it was just, you know, it was always the place I wanted to, open the film because that's when I first came to New York, that's where I, that was, you know, that was, that was my, my temple. Yeah. <laughs> going to that, going yeah. to that theater all the time and seeing Kurosawa and Bergman and Antonioni and Fellini and, you know, and Preston Sturges and, <laughs> and, you know, and also seeing some really some documentaries for the first time theatrically projected, like seeing um, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky's, film Brothers Keeper, which is a film that really had a huge effect on me, um, just to see what really, in, in many ways, the, 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 the rich ambiguities yeah. of life that documentaries presented. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that film it remains a, a film for me that means a great deal. I, I think, I think uh, Joe is considering re-releasing it. I, I hope he does. It's, it's, oh, an, it's an incredible film. Yeah, it is. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I, I had a conversation with um, Lois um, from uh, PBS. The uh, um, oh my gosh, the um, the executive producer for a lot of the film series. Lois, I can't think of her name now. She's famous anyway. And the conversation had to do with documentaries and the impact it's had on. Her life, I had her on to talk about just in general, you know, and uh, come and and she, and we got into the conversation about documentaries that really impacted our lives, like really yes. had that kind of yes. influence you're talking about. And uh, I mentioned for me, it was uh, um, the first one was Hearts and Minds. So it was the one that really kind of opened oh, yes. my eyes to a lot of things. And then Thin Blue Line was another one that came along that had that Absolutely. kind of an impact. And, huge, and a huge impact. Right. I don't know if you if you saw Sherman's March. That was a film that had a huge impact on me. You know, I've never Ross seen McElwee's it. film. Oh, it's a marvelous film. I've returned to it many times. And 
it's just it, it it's a oh it's a it's a it's a terrific i have to watch it terrific mean, work of art yeah i i know that he, i just saw something that came across my radar about a retrospective on his work mm-hmm. and and i just remember seeing i hadn't seen it you know re- just realized that i have i'll, I'll watch it thank you well, you must see that film it's it's yeah, just it's yeah. wonderful it's funny and wise and sad and and, uh, and self-revelatory and, and that was another great inspiration for me really the the idea of a journey and and you know in setting out to make my architect um uh, films like that were the ones that that inspired me partly because i i felt that you know making a documentary could be an adventure in which one really wouldn't know where it was going to go yeah. and and that that was not only okay but that was part of what you wanted was this idea that the camera sort of gave you this this wonderful reason to go on a journey and that and that almost an excuse you know to ask questions that were sort of embarrassing to ask and that's in, in a way you know i of course i always wanted to know about my father and my experience with him you know as a little boy um the way he would kind of come into my life and you know sort of in and out drift in and out of my life i mean i certainly saw him from you know from time to time on weekends and things and then later when my mother worked with him i was in his office as a little boy too but it was always these kind of these these illuminations these like spots of time you know where where it was just sort of emblazoned in my mind but there but it was all through the vision of a child and then because he died when i was 11 and because he didn't live with us it really was just these kind of these these searing memories many of them very wonderful and some of them sad and some of them touching and then of course the final sort of memory of the mystery of his death you know kind of always was this thing this knot for me and it wasn't until i became a filmmaker that i really realized well this is you know this is the way for me to go and find out there you know without the camera it would be hard to ask the questions that i asked with the camera and I think that's something that, you know, documentarians, um, documentary filmmakers have, have always been, been, you know, been, been using the camera in that way to go and ask questions that are, that are hard to ask. You know, beautiful film, Minding the Gap, just a couple of years ago. Um, such, a, such a beautiful journey and, and feels very much in the same spirit of really not, not being sure where the film is going to take you. And I think audiences really respond to that because that's the way life is. You know, way too many films are completely prescribed from the start. You already know what's going to happen. And there's a certain pleasure in watching, you know, how a filmmaker or, or a, you know, a different permutation of an old story happens and unfolds. But to me, that's not as exciting as something where I truly don't know what's going to happen. And of course, the great greatest feature films are like that, too. You know, I mean, you've got no idea where Mean Streets is going to go, right? <laughs> and it has that sort of documentary feel um, that I just that that I'm very, very drawn to, uh, you know, as a filmmaker. Yeah, and I would even make the case, although it certainly doesn't hold across um, all of narrative films for me, because there's been some that have been truly impactful in, in so many different ways. But I think that's one of the things I derive from watching a documentary film is mm. that that sensation of, first of all, it's a, a story you couldn't have made up. Secondly, oh. you have no idea where it's going to go. And, and the last part of that equation for me is it illuminates uh, something for me that is profound because I know it's coming from something that is is possible. Yes. No, absolutely. Because it's coming from life. Yeah. Um, and, and that was, you know, that was my hope in re-releasing the film, too. Uh, 
I mean, a lot goes into that. The, the kind of, the film really hadn't been, well, I mean, people have seen it in various bootleg versions and in different languages, and you can find it on YouTube and things like that. But, you know, the actual experience of the film, unfortunately, because, you know, New Yorker Films went away, New Yorker Films was the, was the original distributor of my architect, and I had a great working relationship with them, and they were really committed to releasing the film theatrically, and when it was released, theatrical, you know, having a film in the theater was something, of course, that you kind of expected, you know, if, if the film worked out. And now that's not at all a, a foregone conclusion. Um, but the film had not been sort of readily available for a number of years. And I felt that it was time to bring it back. And I wanted to see how audience would, audiences would respond 20 years later, you know, because partly because, you know, when I first made the film, there was, I don't know, I suppose my father was still someone who was kind of maybe a little bit more in the dialogue. And there was, it hadn't, it had been a while since he died, 25 years. But there were a lot of people who came to see the film because they knew about him. It, 20 years on, many of the people who are coming to see the film don't know about him. And they're just able to experience the film as a film, not as something about this guy that you've already heard of. It's just a film and it's a, it is a son's odyssey uh looking for answers about his father i mean it's a, you know it's a it's a it's a classic mythic story and and i wanted to see it would still work you know and how people would respond to it and we did a few screenings uh, well i mean first of all there was the enormous task of restoring it um and it really was we went back to the original uh material as much as possible um, and because the film was made from very eclectic sources you know it had it it, it's, it was in that period of of kind of film technology where there was still, I mean, some of the film was shot on 16, some of it was shot on Super 16, some of it was shot with my Bolex at various, you know, off speeds, slow motion and, and, and pixelated motion and all kinds of things. Um, and then there was lots of, there was, there was old, there were old transfers of films that had been made of my father. Then there was early tape stuff. A lot of it was on standard on beta SP, which actually I was afraid, gee, will this hold up? Some of it was on DV cam. The only format that it wasn't on was iPhone because iPhones didn't exist, but, you know, very eclectic. And we had managed to put it together and, and, you know, make it work at the time. But being able to go back to those sources, tape dropout is a big concern. And so there were all kinds of we had to pull things from lots of different sort of um, various, you know, various sources that we had, sometimes going back to the original material, even the original film. And I worked with this just fantastic person, Patrick Lindemeyer, at a, a group called Andromeda. He's, he's in, out of Switzerland. And he was part of the original Swiss effects group that first did tape to film transfers. So this is somebody who's deeply involved with, with movie making, is a cinematographer as well, but really understood the process of wanting to get the best of the best and to preserve something. So going back to all those sources and going through all that, that was, you know, that was sort of the first step. And then the question is, well, you know, what's this, how is this going to play to, to fresh eyes, to, to new audiences? And we did a few screenings at Film Forum last fall, and it was just, it was the most thrilling experience to have this, it, we're coming out of the pandemic, we're in this era when there are really questions like, okay, are we still going to have films in theaters? And, you know, of course we are, because it's a fundamental human experience. It's like live theater, that will, it will never go away, because being in a room with other people and having a collective experience is something 
it's it's fundamental to being a human being. It just it just is. So so we're always going to have it. But the question is, you know, in what way are we going to have it? And of course, I'd always loved the name Film Forum, but I hadn't quite, I don't think, fully grasped the forum aspect of it until we brought this film back. And suddenly I'm in this room with audiences that had never seen the film before. Some, of course, some people had, but many in the room had not. And we're in this forum talking about just the experience of the movie. It's not about you came because you'd heard of the architect or, you know, or you, it was hyped or something. It was almost this kind of this, this magical experience and the insights coming out of it were fresh and new and, and the film was inspiring new questions. And that was just, I mean, that's the most gratifying thing as a person who makes things in the world to know that you've connected with someone else. I mean, that's fundamental to, to why one does these things. For people who uh, don't know your father, Louis Kahn, let's talk about his his professional life first, and then we can, I think, segue into the part where uh, it's a more personal side of his life, or mix the two if you want. Whatever let's, you like. Yeah, sure. let's talk about your father, Louis Kahn, and his place in the firmament of uh, architects within the for the last uh, 150 years or so, right? That'd be a good place to to place him in that Content. Sure. I mean, it's in a way it's 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 become harder for me to separate him as a person and him as an architect. So I'm not I'm not sure that I'm the right one to, you know, to sort of to speak objectively about him. Okay. But certainly my my sense of him as an artist and as an architect, he was first of all an artist. He's an immigrant to the United States from Estonia. He was 61 when I was born. So he came here to America in 1905. He was born in 1901. His life spanned a lot of the, of the 20th century and, and the cataclysms of the 20th century. So he came from the Russian Empire. You know, Estonia was part of the Russian Empire. Then it was not an independent country. And Jews were being persecuted. I'm afraid there's nothing new there. <laughs> uh, but uh, being persecuted um, and his family wanted a better life. My grandfather, his father, was actually a, was a, a scribe in the Russian army. He was a very educated guy and spoke many languages. And the family legend was he, you know, he would he would write letters for the Russian soldiers who were not, uh, were, were, you know, were not literate. And uh, he would write the letters for them and they would send them. So he was sort of a, you know, guy people like to have around. But the story was they were going to send him off to the Far East to fight the Russo-Japanese War. And he knew this is, I've got to get out of here. So so he met, and they were very poor. My father, when he was three years old, was had a terrible accident, was, his face very badly burned in a fire. One of his fundamental stories of wanting to play with the light that was in the fire. And he took the coals out of the fire with tongs and put them in his little apron that he was wearing and it flamed up in his face and burned his face so he almost died from those burns this was before any medical care and they lived in a tiny shtetl in uh in estonia um so he was already marked by the time he came to america but his father came first and then um my grandmother and and three children came later and my father they settled in philadelphia and lived in a very poor area of town but he had a gift as an artist from the very beginning and could draw and that was, you know, art was, <laughs> it still makes me emotional. Uh, art was his ticket to life. 
So he drew very well, won awards for his drawing. He also played the piano really well. He played in the silent movie houses. He kind of learned how to play the piano by ear. He never read music. So art was his ticket to life. And, and then in high school, he hit this uh, class. He went to Central High um, Public School in, in, in Philadelphia. And as a, as a senior, he had this class from this wonderful teacher, William Gray, who he always named him, you know, and, and so I named him too, I honor him, um, in architecture. And it was in, in, in Gothic and, and Greek and Roman architecture. And uh, my father just realized, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It was kind of unusual, I think, for architecture was sort of a gentleman's profession. He entered it at, at, at a time, you know, went to the University of Pennsylvania on a scholarship, then worked for a great architect named Paul Cray, who was a, a trained in the Beaux-Arts tradition. So it was very much about sort of classicism, you know, columns and fronts and temples and, you know, sort of civic buildings and good stuff, but also also sort of imperial yeah. and had limitations, you know. And at the same time, in Europe, of course, the international style, the idea of glass boxes and sort of pure spaces and 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 what steel could do and what glass could do and this is growing up and those two things kind of crash together and suddenly there's this kind of mess um and then of course the the, the mess of you know of of the depression the, there was no work you know and then the sort of idea certainly with the rise of fascism around the world that a lot of these classical sort of style buildings with the columns and things looked you know looked fascist so there was this kind of sense that, well, I, I don't want to be doing that. that. That doesn't really work, you know, but this modern stuff is very exciting and he sees all those things, but that doesn't quite feel right because it feels kind of flimsy. So he really rattled around for many years. And I, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but in the 1950s, in the early 1950s, he got this and he'd done some good work, mostly in public housing and, and in really trying to sort of engage the problem of cities and redesigning cities and the growth of cities and how, how you know people being sort of marginalized and demoralized and 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 the kind of the in a way the excitement but also the the the, the problems of the urban environment those were problems he was very concerned with and he remained concerned with those things for the rest of his life but he sort of wasn't able to get traction and part of that i think was you know, he didn't have any social standing. He was Jewish. He um, came from a poor background, very talented, but had difficulty engaging in the kind of the system, if you will, right. which really was kind of a gentleman's profession. So in the 50s, early 50s, he went back to the ancient world. He had an, a fellowship and was able to see he's 50 years old and really hasn't found a voice for himself, goes back to the ancient world and sees the sources of great architecture, Egypt and Greece and Rome and medieval buildings. And suddenly this kind of thing becomes clear to him that there could be a fusion of modern needs and the needs of, of modern people with the kind of the power and the presence and the monumentality of ancient architecture. And those two things just collided like a thunderbolt for him. And in the space of 20 years, really, from mid-50s and a little building he built called the Trenton Bathhouse, which features in the film, to his final buildings in, in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and, and uh, the Yale Center for British Art and Kimball Art Museum and this kind of flowering of his work till his death, you know, from the mid-50s to the mid, he dies in 1974. In 20 years, he did what many people 
dream of doing in a lifetime. Right. So he just he just he burned the candle at the both ends, both ends and the middle in those last in those last 20 years of his life. And really, it was I, I guess what I would say is I really resist the idea of summing up someone's work or what they stand for. I think it's too, way too facile. But I do think one can say about his work that he brought back a sense of of, of kind of of, monu of monumentality, permanence, solidity, spirituality to architecture. That's what he stood for. He didn't single-handedly bring those things back. I'm not trying to apply that, but that's what he stood for in a time when there was an awful lot of flimsy architecture, glass, steel boxes. He was interested in something much more solid and timeless and evocative. So you go in his spaces, and I always felt this even as a child, there is a feeling you get when you walk into the Exeter Library. You, you feel, There's something spiritual there really is. And it has to do with materiality. And it has to do with space. It has to do with light, profoundly with light. I mean, he was very concerned with light. And that goes back, I think, to his childhood fascination with those coals in the fire. You know, all of that was was rolling around somehow in this man's spirit. You step into the, the Salk Institute between those two wings of the building. It's as if the negative space that's there, the sky above, the ocean in the distance, and these walls that are around you, you suddenly feel like you're in a, a, a space of spiritual elevation. Something happens, and it has to do with proportions and enormous attention to detail. I mean, this is a guy who hated to see something sloppy or flabby or unresolved. I mean, these days there's so much architecture around. It's just, it's so very, very sloppy. I mean, we see it in all professions. People want to make a splash. I understand. <laughs> but... The details get left behind a lot of times and, you know, you don't have things that last. So he's interested in architecture that creates a sense of uplift, I think, in the human spirit. And that's something that he, he brings to the table. Of course, he dies in this dramatic way, you know, he dies in the bowels of Penn Station, you know, the, the worst of the worst. You know, Penn Station used to be Pennsylvania Station was a magnificent building. It was, you know, it was <laughs> this this kind of temple to modernity with glass and and uh, you know an incredible building that was a great train station in the tradition of you know the great european train stations and they tore it down and built madison square garden nothing against madison square garden uh, you know as a venue but that what was left underneath was this horrible just you know just just twisted really a digestive tract of a building and it was like the worst of the worst in new york city and that's where my father died, you know, on his way home from India. So, I mean, you, you can't write this stuff, right? It's just <laughs> it's the way it happened. And and so he sort of dies in this way that, that is symbolic, I think, for, for people feel it's symbolic in a way. All the things he tried to change, you know, in the end, <laughs> that's where he, he exits the world. A man who was interested in uplifting human and using architecture to truly to make life better for people, to uplift people, to inspire them. Very much a sense, I think, of if it was a school that you're designing, it should be a place where you'd like to go to learn. If it's a library, it should be a place where you want to pull a book out of the shelf and go to a window and sit down for an hour and focus. <laughs> so the functions of the building, also enormously important to him, beyond just kind of making a splash, 
the building had to work for what it was designed for. So there's a kind of, I guess, a kind of moral responsibility there, you know, as as a creator of things that will be used by people to try to really think about those people and do right by the future. I've come late in life to the appreciation of architecture and its mm. functionality and its its place in society. I have a friend who kind of put me on to that, just kind of blithely going through life as, well, it's a building, it's mm -hmm. a school, it's a whatever it is. And I have come to appreciate it more and more all the time. And in the film, and again, um, the things that jumped out at me was you mentioned the Salk Institute, and as well as the last thing we see in the film, which is the um, Bangladeshi, what it was, what's it called? I want to get it right. Yeah, the ca the capital. It's called Sher e Bangla Nagar. It's the it's the city of the Bengal tiger, in uh, in Dhaka, Bangladesh. It it is the capital of the of the country. It's just spectacular. Of the country. Yeah. It's it's just a spectacular space, and just to see in the way it was filmed in 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 uh, my architect is uh, it gives us some sense of an appreciation of what he was about and what he was accomplishing. And the fact that this was in, this was his last project. Am I correct in saying that? Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, it actually was begun in the sixties. It was, oh. it was the one that was finished uh, the longest after his death. It was finished in about 1983. So nearly 10 years after his death, it was still being built. I want to first, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Nathaniel Kahn. He is the director of a, film that is being re-released, the documentary film being re-released in a restored version of it is called My Architect, and it will be screening at the Film Forum in New York uh, beginning on April 7th through the 13th, and hopeful that it will be uh, released in some version around the country, um, just however it's going to roll out from there. Um, do you have any any plans beyond Film Forum? Oh, very much so. I'm working with, um, with uh, Abramarama, a, a company that um, that uh, helped us with the price of everything, actually, and I enjoyed my experience with them very much. They're uh, releasing the film throughout throughout the country, so it's it's very much one of the reasons I wanted to work with them is they work hard to find to find spots to show the film throughout the world. I mean, something like this has to be, or throughout the country, it has to be a a persistent slow burn. One really has to think about it venue by venue, and we're very much working on bringing this film theatrically to cities and uh, theaters around the country. And that will be um, first in, in, in movie theaters, art houses. And then of course, also it will be in, in art museums and such as well. But I, I really am excited about seeing it projected again yeah. because it is the communal experience, the forum experience, the, the, the idea of being in a room with, with a group of people, some of, many of whom you don't know, experiencing something together and then having this kind of space almost it is almost an architectural feeling afterwards as when the film is done and the credits are rolling there's this almost a kind of a sacred pause that happens in in one's life i think after you've seen a film that that has some some juice to it you're you're left with these images and impressions and ideas and it tends to make you want to talk to people about it and one of the things, of course, in Film Forum, at Film Forum that's great and other, other venues too, art houses, is we do have these Q&As afterwards where really it's not about talking more about the film. It's about, you know, or sort of presenting more ideas. It's more about we, the filmmakers, want to hear what people are feeling from the film, what they're seeing in it, what a new audience is seeing. 
And suddenly you get this conversation that's completely unexpected. Yeah. And that's what we had at Film Forum. And I'm looking forward to engaging with audiences elsewhere around the country. Well, we're here in Los Angeles. We're looking forward uh, to to that happening as well. I'm sure you'll find there's some terrific venues in Los Angeles. We'll be looking for that. As as much as this is about his work as an architect, my architect, and I think that those the those two words tie this together with the with his work as well as the personal side, and to see to see how his life played out, especially um, a very complicated complex life that he he lived as a professional and as a as a family person as someone who had i don't know how to say this without oh, giving anything ahead. away yeah it's, no it's but I, I, I him multiple family situations sure. in his life and I, I there's something very relevatory about that the the story of him and with the calls and burning himself and mm. the reaction of his father to what happened and his mother and it seemed in some ways, maybe I'm overstating this, to set in motion for him a lot of we, what we see play out in his life. His father's his father's estimation of his worth, his mother's estimation of his worth after mm-hmm. that happened seems, I, I don't know, is that foundational? Is that a, is that a, a, a way to put it? Or am I, again? Okay, I'm, so I've been, I've been thinking about this film for, okay, 20 years since it was released and, and, and five years before that. And no one's ever pointed that out. So thank you. I, that's new to me. I mean, I, I'm aware of the differences there, but I, nobody's ever sort of called that out as being something of importance. You're really kind of blowing my mind here. That's really interesting. I, uh, um, you know, when he was burned, his, his father thought it would be better if he died. And his mother felt otherwise. <laughs> and and it, I'm not saying that his father wanted him to die, but he felt that the scars would be so bad that it would it would really i guess i mean i don't know i wasn't there but but it, the the feeling i suppose was that it w- he would it would mark him in a way that would that would make life very difficult for him yeah. and then his mother felt that no the scars would make him stronger and that he would grow up because and become some kind of a great person because of it and you know i don't i think those are sort of those are the legends one lives with i don't know really what to make of that except what you sort of suggested is not just the burning was foundational, but also the opinions of one one's parents about it are foundational. I think you're right. I think that's a very. I have to really reflect on that. I do think. I do think. My dad did not. He wasn't one for rules, <laughs> and I mean he he broke many of them. The ones that we the unspoken ones, you know, or the ones that we sort of assume. I mean, having um, being married but having two families outside of that marriage with you know all of the women in his life were very strong women yeah every one of them and they all loved him and in various ways enabled him to be the person he he was and i think that i'm not here to judge that right i observe it i'm troubled by it yet i exist so I I can't you know there's a limit a limit to 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 I'm in a way I'm the I'm certainly not one to judge it because if I were to judge it maybe I wouldn't exist so but I would say that one of the things I I wanted to do in and one of the things that was very interesting in re-releasing the film is that people were asking questions about how do we how do we take that information in that this is a person who made enormously sort of valuable 
beautiful, useful, inspired, responsible buildings for human beings. Yet in his personal life, he treats people who are very close to him pretty shabbily, maybe even with disregard. You know, and I want to be clear, this was a very loving man. This is a person when you're in his presence, you felt like you were the only one in the world, but then you might not see him for a hell of a long time. So there was definitely having these multiple sort of people who relied on him and 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 but who couldn't really rely on him. You know, how do you square this human being who makes these things that are of such great responsibility and yet is so really irresponsible in their personal life? How do you square that? And I think, you know, we live in a time when the the instinct now is just to judge that person right. and to try to say it's this way and it's that way, you know, it's a bad person, bad, bad man. There are evil people in the world. And I make, uh, you know, I'm not speaking about that. There's no question. There's great, there, there's, there's good people and bad people. But in something like, in, in a case like this, one is really faced with ambiguity. You have to try to hold both things in your mind and say, how does that feel? What do I do with that? So many of the questions and many of the conversations we had coming out of the film forum screenings were about how do I deal with this, especially in this day and age? And what I was so sort of heartened by was that there was a hunger for the complexity and a hunger for the ambiguity and a hunger for how do I deal with this rather than a leap to judgment. So that was a really, that was that, that gave me great sort of great sense of hope and a, and a sense in a way of, of our, our age becoming deeper and and more subtle and more able to handle complexities and that was you know then the question sort of came up well what is a hero and that that's a fantastic question you know we we live in a in a sort of moment certainly with the streamers and you know all these mega productions about sort of hero, the heroic ages and you know kings and queens and, and you know and and all of which are you know the great shows are wonderful but i think there is this kind of hunger to you know for heroes for a time of heroes and for heroes. And yet, in reality, you know, a man like my father might have been a hero to architects, but hardly heroic in his actions towards people who are close to him. How do you deal with that? And so people were wanting to engage that question. And I think it's a it's a damn great question to, to engage and think about it. I'm I think about it a lot. One of the great things about the film, there's so many great things to point out, but you are on a journey, as we all are, at some point in our lives, we have to ask the question, if I didn't know this person, who's my father or my mother, and I <laughs> met them on the street, yes, what would I think of them? And I think you're, the, the beauty of your film is you answer that question to to a large degree. That's, 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 that's wonderful to hear. And I think the idea, what you've said is that the film is an experience. Yeah. And that's what I long for people to get out of it most of all, is that they come, you know, with an open heart and open mind, open eyes, and have an experience. That's why we make films, to create experiences, to share. Ah, Nathaniel Kahn, thank you so very, very much. Thank you for My Architect. Thank you for the re-release. Again, it's going to be screening at the Film Forum beginning on April 7th. It will be released, as we heard, around the country. Be looking for this. Please come back anytime. Thank you very much. Thank you.
You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.